Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. This is Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys. You know, I love talking about the channel, especially SaaS channels. And today, we're diving into a very sassy topic, the rise of the influencer, also known as the shadow channel. There's a lot happening in this world of influencing and the shadow channel. And we have a special guest today, Dave Taylor, who is CMO of Impartner, a very successful channel tech company with a comprehensive channel management platform. And they recently made an acquisition of a company that was born and specialized in referral partners and managing and driving referral programs. That's a big play in the influencer channel. You're going to learn all about that. If you have a referral program or you're thinking about launching one, this episode is packed with insights you don't want to miss. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Dave, good morning. Welcome to Channel Journeys. How are you doing? Good, Rob. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is exciting. It is exciting. Great to have you on the show finally. We've been talking for a while about getting you on here to, to talk about things. And where do we find you today? I am in uh, beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah today. It's a gorgeous day. Cold, not a cloud in the sky. It's just a beautiful uh, fall, almost winter day. Are you looking forward to the ski season? By all reports... This is going to be just a massive ski season this year. We had a great one last year. We've got another good one coming up this winter. So absolutely. Are we going to get you out here this winter? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to get out for your partner event. And I may even get out a little bit sooner. My brothers have a place out there and we're trying to line up a trip. Good. You'll have a great time. Yeah, I love it out there. All right. So we have some interesting things to discuss today. This super hot trend of what's going on around a different set of partner types and before we get into it, you know, whenever I, we've seen each other a couple of times before at trade shows, at your partner event, and you always do something fun that I love at the shows, you make a game out of it. You do something fun and you have a different theme to it. And since I know you like to have fun and you like to do quizzes, I've got a quiz for you. Oh man, this takes me back to my college days. I'm nervous now, Rob. <laughs> there are only three answers on each one of them. So you got a one out of three chance of getting it right. Okay. Even I can't go too far off on that. You can't go too far off. Okay. All right. And you can always call a friend if you get stuck. <laughs> All right. So here's the first one. Salesforce says they want to double their business from $13 billion to $26 billion in the next four years. How many non-transactional partners do they plan to add to achieve that goal? A, 50,000 partners. B, 250,000 partners, or C, more than any channel chief could even imagine? Well, okay, it's got to be B and C, because I believe it's 250,000 non-transactional partners, but also that is more than any channel chief can possibly imagine. <laughs> you are correct on both counts. All right. Number two, Microsoft, which already has 400,000 partners, is now recruiting 7,500 partners a month. What percent of these partners are non-transacting? Is it A, 20%, B, 50%, or C, 80%? All right, let's see. So, okay, I think I know this one as well. I think it's B or C. I'm going to go with C, 80% non-transacting partners. It is C, 80%. It's incredible. So 
you are correct on number two. You're two for two. I'm killing it. You're killing it. All right. Here's the big one. This is a challenging one. What is the shadow channel? Is it A, a segment of channel partners operating behind the scenes in the dark, or B, an unlikely set of companies who are influencing the sales of your products, whether you know it or not, or C, a canal in Venice blocked from the sun? (laughs) Okay, look, that's a great question as well. Hey, honestly, I think it's some combination of A and B, but I think I'm going to go with B because A feels a little too restrictive to me. I'm going with B on that one. (laughs) You are correct. All right, three for three, you killed it. And that sets the stage for what I want to chat about with you today is the shadow channel and all these different partner types, these non-transactional partners. So let's start with that. What really is the shadow channel? How do you view it? How is in partner viewing it? You're talking to a lot of companies. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on this. Absolutely. And, you know, and partner has been in business selling channel management tools for long enough that we've heard the conversations shift a bit with the customers that we deal with. And the shift that we've seen has been, you know, the sassier, I don't even know if that's a word, the sassier our customers tend to be, the less traditional their go-to-market through indirect channels tends to be. And and as we dig in on that and kind of, you know, peel back the layers to figure out what the differences are, it looks to us like the majority of our customer companies that are kind of, you know, either born in the cloud or doing business primarily out of the cloud, they tend to have a go-to-market model where they do most of their customer transactions on their own paper, but they have a very, very broad set of uh, influencers out in the market. And in the past, we would have referred to that. This is, I think this harks back a little bit to the question you asked, you know, what is a shadow channel? They're a little bit less of kind of referral partners and more of a referral generating, uh, kind of demand generating ecosystem of, you know, people that are anywhere from referral partners to influencer companies, to CPA firms, to ISVs, um, to Uber drivers that happen to overhear a conversation in the backseat of their car. You know, it's hard to predict where that demand is going to come from, where those referrals are going to come from. And that phrase shadow channel kind of kind of encompasses all of these very, very non-traditional uh, go-to-market methods. So, you know, as I think about this and the referral partner And you think about the telco channel, which has been operating for years in a referral model, hasn't it? But with the telco agents, because the the deal is still done directly by the telco company, but they have this massive network of referral agents. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great example. And, you know, we have a couple of customers of ours that are telco companies. And, you know, as we started kind of moving into more of this influencer model, I ran back through some of the customers that we've done business with. And I recognized that some of the work that they had asked us to do was to kind of turn it more into an influencer go-to-market model. And so absolutely right. Telco companies, you know, we do business with some financial services institutions. And so many of them, you know, have these non-traditional channels. I just don't think they've all been kind of corralled together under one term before. Yeah. And the big difference you mentioned, the, the telco channel, these were agents. They were known. It was a well-established channel. They had master agents, but we don't have Ubers and master Uber agents <laughs> to go to, right? The, all these different different types of partners that are, they, how do we bring them out of the shadows, I guess, is the question. How do we identify them and manage them and what motivates them? Uh, yeah. And that's, and that's really the question. 
you know, the partner business model and the value proposition that we've had to our more traditional customers has been, you know, the indirect channel. And I'm talking now about a traditional kind of reseller channel, VARs and distributors and resellers has been a little bit of a black box in the past. You put in a lot of time and effort and money and every now and then revenue comes out and you don't kind of see the connection between the two. And so what our business has been is kind of cracking that black box open and saying, we can bring predictability and insight and repeatability into that reseller channel. And now we're saying the same thing to people that have this more non-traditional, the kind of shadow channel. We're saying, look, you know, a large percentage of your business comes from this ecosystem or this influencer model. How would you like to be able to have the same level of insight and predictability And I guess with predictability comes repeatability and scalability into what has in the past been just an absolute, uh, you know, goat rodeo of trying Mm -hmm. to figure out where the demand is coming from and how you can capture it and how you can influence it. And it has been a challenge for people, but but that's exactly what we're trying to what we're trying to help with for sure. So before we dive into that, let's back up a minute. And you said like the sassier the company, the more non-traditional the channel. Why are they? Is it, is it that they're rejecting the reseller channel? Is it the resale model just not working for the SaaS company? You know, why is that not a more prominent play for the SaaSier companies? That is the question. And, uh, and I feel like I should be asking you that question because you've probably got some great insight on that. But for us, you know, our SaaS customers tend to have a transaction model that says, regardless of how the customer finds their way to their digital storefront, they are open for business and ready to transact right off a website, or they've got click to accept terms and a contract. And so they can do, nobody has to carry inventory for them. Nobody has to worry about credit risk and currency fluctuations. They're open for business 24-7, ready to transact right away. All they need is somebody to kind of shepherd that demand to their front door. And so, you know, so our traditional customers who, uh, you know, we absolutely love passionately tend to be people that have, you know, either software products that need to be stocked and installed and they need somebody to go on site and facilitate the implementation or they tend to be traditional kind of manufacturing companies. We have huge companies that we've got one company that manufactures, you know, pumps and golf carts and heating HVAC equipment. And, you know, for all of those things, the traditional channel is a perfect, perfect fit for them. And and, and I always try and be a little bit cautious, not, you know, not to say, you know, this is the old way of doing it. This is the new way of doing it. Because really that reseller model still is a perfect, perfect fit for such a huge number of customers. Um, But what we do see is for every one customer that's transacting through the traditionally defined channel, we're seeing three, four, and sometimes five customers that are transacting through, you know, cloud-based, non-traditional ISV influencer. So, So the shadow channel, we think, has the potential to be as big, if not, you know, dramatically larger than but certainly, I don't ever want to give the impression that the traditional channel is disappearing. I, we don't see that as being the case. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dave. And, and that's what I'm seeing in my role at OutSystems. It's not either or. It's This is one of many partner models or yeah, partner program models that we're executing on and, and certainly a big, important, and growing one. It's a little bit 
dependent on geography. Uh, different places in the world where we're much more reliant on more of a traditional reseller model. Other geographies, it's much more reliant on a re referral model. And the other dynamic too, I think, is the complexity of the sale and the necessity of how much customer support is needed during the sales cycle. And that's where you know we like the referrals to, to uncover new opportunities, but someone has to be in there working the opportunity. And that's either our direct sales rep and or the partner. And in our case, it's typically our rep with the partner. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one, you know, we're talking about this being the shadow channel. One of the other terms that I use or that I hear used frequently about it is, is a, a sell with rather than a sell through. And, and so what you're defining is exactly that. It's a sell with model. And I like the point that you made, which is it does tend to be a model that is used in very specific circumstances. It can be added onto the more traditional sell through channel. And so, you know, we have customers that are using sell through in international markets. So they'll pick a master distributor in a, in some country and the master distributor then owns the responsibility for transacting, doing, you know, first line support, uh, localization of content, et cetera. Whereas in the domestic market, uh, the company is willing and able to kind of handle most of that themselves. And so they use the referral. So it doesn't have to be an either or. I think the power really comes in the blended, more hybrid model for sure. Yeah, exactly. So with all these different types of shadow partners or referral partners, influencers, like you mentioned, it could be the accountants, the who knows, lawyers, Uber drivers, whatever. How do you manage those? And is there a risk of running into some Robinson-Patman issues if you're treating them differently? So I'm so glad you mentioned the Robinson-Patman issue. Uh, you know, I, I brought this up in a, in a presentation I gave not too long ago where I said where I said very specifically to the audience, you know, it was a group of channel chiefs looking for ways that they could, you know, segment their channel tier more effectively. And my point to them was effective segmentation is the safest way to avoid any Robinson-Patman issues. If you're giving arbitrary preference to one partner over another and you can't peg that preference to, to a specific metric, you open yourself up to some legal risks. And so we see our customers looking for ways that they can micro-segment their go-to-market channels into a variety of different tiers that allows them to legally deal with those tiers you know, in individual ways. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of our customers look to referral programs as a way to onboard and offboard people in and out of their channel program. You mentioned Microsoft. You quoted the statistic of a, some huge number. I can't remember your number, but a huge number of incoming partner applications. Yeah, 7,500 new partners per month. 7500 a month, you know, it's an effective thing for Microsoft to take them all and put them into a referral pool and have a metric that says, if I get a referral from you, you know, once a month for three months in a row, I'm going to go ahead and bump you up into my sell through. If it meets your business requirement, you know, if it's, if it's the type of model you're looking for, I can bump you up into a sell through model that has more obligation, obligations to you. You've got to get more people trained and you've got to do MDF programs, et cetera, and more obligations to me as the vendor. I've got to offer you a certain amount of leads and I've got to give you the same terms and conditions. And so 
that type of legal obligation can be incurred on a selective group of people that have moved up out of the referral tier into that kind of reseller tier. But but I, we understand that not every go-to-market partner is going to want to tear up. But for those that do, that can be an effective onboarding and offboarding mechanism as well. Yeah. By offboarding, I assume you mean that if a partner who's in a higher tier, but failing to meet those obligations, you could bump them back down to that referral status. Exactly right. And again, all of, for Robinson Patman reasons, all of this is carefully documented in the terms and conditions that, that the incoming partner applicant has to click to accept. But it says, you know, if it's been a year since your last transaction, but you're still interested in remaining a partner with this vendor, we'll drop you back into referral status. It changes your obligation to the vendor. It changes the vendor's obligation to you. And you can carry on merrily as a referral partner. But again, if you capture some new big customer base and you want to tear back up, here's how you do it. And so, you know, that is that is one specific use case. We're looking at that right now. We're modifying our partner program to allow greater flexibility like this. And one of the questions we have is how long should we keep someone in that referral partner status? You know, we're thinking we need minimum requirements even for that status because otherwise you end up with an incredibly long tail and and maybe that's fine for some companies and and we'll get into the technology of managing that. But are you hearing discussion around that of whether or not you should put some parameters around even how long you keep someone as a referral partner? Oh, absolutely. And I assume you're talking about in the offboarding phase. No, even on the onboarding, like we bring on a new partner and they jump in at referral status. And if they haven't, you know, referred a certain number of companies to us, or maybe taken some basic sales training, we might not even bump them up to, you know, or we may not, sorry, we may not even keep them at referral. We might want to say, Hey, you know, this doesn't look like a, a mutually beneficial partnership. Well, and you know, you're also going to have a, a certain percentage. I don't know a lot about your program, but you're also going to have a certain percent who are going to say, Nope, no, thanks. Don't ever want to move into that sell through model. That's not my business. I don't yeah. have five SEs, you know, sales engineer that I'm willing to go get trained and certified on your product. I don't have a marketing department, so I can't do cooperative marketing campaigns with you. I'm totally happy just being a referral partner. And so, you know, you're going to have a lot of people that want to, that want to stay there. But for those that want to move up, in my perspective, I would go, I would onboard faster and offboard slower. So in other words, I'd take somebody in referral. I'd make sure they meet the terms and conditions, make sure they're willing to invest the way I'm going to invest in them. But I can see somebody who's willing and anxious. I can see that I can see leveling them up within two to three months. On the other hand, as I'm offboarding somebody, because I've moved them to referral status, it means I no longer have an obligation to carry them in my partner locator. And I don't have legal obligations for a cooperative marketing fund or variable incentive rebates or any of that nonsense. I can carry them for a year as a referral partner. I have no problem with that. So onboard faster, offboard slower. Interesting. Interesting. So let's get into the management because we're not in my situation with our company, we're not talking anywhere near the, the numbers of partners that we're hearing about at Salesforce and Microsoft. How do they possibly manage that many non-transactional partners? Um, so, you know, when I had this conversation with a customer, the first thing I want to know is, is what they mean by manage. What is their intent? You know, when I think about when I think about referral partners, it's very easy for me, along with customers, to kind of categorize them in what I would call managed versus unmanaged referral partners. A managed mm-hmm. referral partner to me is somebody that I have some kind of, you know, click to accept type of relationship with. I know enough about them that I can list them in a partner locator. 
I have a reasonable expectation of a certain incoming flow of referrals from them on a monthly or a quarterly basis. They've probably clicked to accept my terms and conditions. And so, you know, uh, when it comes time to pay them the rebate, on a referral, you know, I've got all their tax information. So I consider a person like that to be a managed referral partner. Unmanaged for us means, you know, you mentioned, you said a minute ago, accounting firms, you know, the example that that we're very familiar with, because one of our prospective customers has such a huge go-to-market channel through CPA firms, you know, they get 53% of their revenue from, you know, from CPA firms who casually refer customers their way. Well, I, I can't do a partner locator that lists every CPA firm in, in North America. And I also don't have a reasonable expectation that I'm going to get incoming uh, referrals from, you know, from every CPA. That would be very, very unmanaged. And so, you know, kind of finding the balance between those and having a program that effectively delineates between them with different terms and conditions that's really the key to kind of driving this. And so when it comes to managing this informal influencer channel, we have to very, very clearly define with our customers, you know, okay, here's a big group of unmanaged referral partners. How many do you think you're going to have? Do you want to reach out to them? You know, the ones that you know about, tough to do. All right, let's let them float. Managed referral providers, do you want to do a monthly newsletter to them? Do you want to? And so once you get those terms and conditions of the type of program defined, then it's easy to start layering the marketing campaigns on top of that. Managed referral providers for me is is, the, is such an ideal category because I know enough about them that if I'm launching a new product or I have a quarter end incentive that I want to launch, I know this group and I can reach out to them and I can say to them, Hey team, if you've got referrals that you've been sitting on, now's the time to get them in because we're paying double rebate for this month or something like that. And there's a great way to kind of communicate with them, reach out to them. We do, we've got a great newsletter product that does newsletters to those groups and you really can manage them as if you owned that group and had some influence over them. That's a great way to look at it, Dave, managed versus unmanaged. And when you say managed, are you also thinking that there's actually a channel manager, a partner manager, either in the field or, you know, remote inside channel manager who's, who is actually managing that account? Now, I don't usually see that. If there is, the ratio of channel account manager to, um, to manage referral providers is much different than channel account managers to reseller partners. You know, we'll see a channel account manager that's managing 15 or 20 reseller partners. If they do have that same relationship with managed referral providers, it's typically one to 200, you know, one to 300 because there is a lot less interaction. In the unmanaged, no relationship, no management. So whether it's managed or unmanagement, unmanaged, you need a lot of automation, don't you, to manage because you're managing the, the payments and, and communications and things like that. Yeah. Oh, no, that, that's absolutely the case. In fact, um, you know, when, when you find yourself in the ideal situation that, that you have more incoming requests to partner than you can possibly handle that managed referral provider tier is a great way to deal with them because there is the possibility of having some communication with them and yet I'm not having to allocate those management resources to them. So so that that is a really good way of doing it. I think one of the reasons that Microsoft is looking for such a high percentage of um, non-transactional partners is simply they just don't they can't process and and have and manage the relationship with you know, 7,500 new, you know, reseller partners on a monthly basis. And so they say, 
you know, look, we love all of you. We'll get to you as quickly as we can. In the meantime, you know, here's a, you know, here's some assets, some content, some sales enabling content for you. You know, here are some program metrics that you can kind of engage with, but it's all on a self-service basis. They don't have, they don't make that commitment to managing that relationship on an ongoing basis. Yeah, you struck a chord there with that comment you said about when you get to a point that you're getting, you know, more inquiries than you can handle. And I'm feeling that today. I just can't believe how many partner requests and how much interest we get at OutSystems. And you need a way to, you know, how do you find the diamond in the rough unless you reach out or have some way to connect and and start engaging with these folks? You know, this is the absolute, this is the perennial problem that we deal with all the time is how do you find the diamond in the rough? If you've got a pretty strict gateway between your incoming applicants and your channel program, then the ball really is in your court as to how you're going to, you know, you've got to watch them carefully and you've got to do grid background checks and see what other you know, the vendors' products they sell with. And so many of the things that you have to do are time-consuming and laborious. It's so much easier to say, great, now the ball's in your court. You all play together nicely. You know, it's like a double-A team, a farm team, you know, for the Houston Astros. You can you send your scout and sit and watch the team play together and you pick the highlights that you want. You pull them into your program. You can absolutely manage that way. So how are you addressing this, Dave? I, you've got some new technology that you acquired to be able to handle this referral channel, right? We do. We we just acquired three months ago a company from Ann Arbor, Michigan called Amplifinity. We found just a really great fit culturally, product fit, tech stack fit, and their strategic vision really aligned closely with ours. So we completed that acquisition maybe three or four months ago. It's been great to have them as part of the partner team. And that's considered referral partner management software? Is that how you define it? It is. We talk about it as being a referral automation platform. And and that's exactly what it does. It manages both unmanaged and managed referral provider programs. Absolutely. So describe to me what it can do. Is it like everything from the onboarding through the management and payments and all of that? It is. It helps you recruit and onboard. You know, once you've got this community or ecosystem built out, it helps manage the complexities of the ecosystem. So there is the ability to click to accept. You know, it gives us the ability to drop a button onto our customer's website that says refer a lead, refer a friend, refer a colleague, whatever you want it to say. And we can be fairly sophisticated in, in, whether, in how we, you know, where we place the button. I know that sounds like such a kind of tactical thing, but very pragmatically, it makes a huge difference to how your program runs. So if you're an apartment complex, and you want to allow your tenants to refer a friend, then you'd put that on an unauthenticated page on your .com website. And when one of your tenants clicks on the button, they're right into the referral platform. On the other hand, you know, if you sell accounting software and you want to make a, a CPA firm able to, to refer a, a, you know, somebody, you put the button in a different place. We put it in, in authenticated locations inside the portal. If you've got a managed referral community so that when a partner comes and logs in and says, look, I'm going to log in so that I can check the status of the referrals that I've already provided. I can see that this one closed. I'm waiting for my payout on that one. I can check the status on the payout. And by the way, I've got two more referrals to provide. So, you know, if you have a managed referral provider partner, 
there is a sense on their side and your side of more of an obligation to manage them effectively and efficiently. And so we, we give them, so, so all of that kind of the flow of incoming demand. But then I think one of the things we do that our customers tend to like the most is, uh, you know, that control center ability to see where the referrals are coming from, to be able to reach out proactively to a managed partner and say, you know, we used to get three referrals a month. We haven't had any for two months. Is there something we could do? Or, or to launch a spiff to your managed partner, your managed a referral provider community. So that ability to manage. Then at the end of the day, when the referrals, when it's time for those to be paid for, we've got a really, really powerful payment engine with, you know, almost infinite number of payment options. You know, ACH, direct deposits. We can write checks. We can do... Uh, cash cards, gift cards, tango cards. I don't know that we've actually had anybody show up at our offices and given them a bundle of cash, but we could probably work that out if you wanted to. So, you know, so it's a really great way to, to kind of manage that payout process. So yeah, it's, it's a start to finish program. Very cool. What are you seeing if you can share kind of range of payments from a commission standpoint? What are SaaS companies paying for referrals? Uh, typically, what we've seen is a percentage of transaction. And so, you know, again, you know, I would sit down with a customer and I would kind of talk through their model. But, you know, if I'm going to be paying on a closed one deal, that means that I'm not paying for an incoming referral. So I don't need to dedupe at that level. I can get the same referral from five referral partners and I'm okay with that. But whichever one progresses through before it converts to an opportunity, I need to dedupe. And so you can see what that flow looks like. But typically we see the payout happen on closed one and it's typically a percentage of revenue. It's a 10% is kind of the most common percentage that we see. We see variations on a theme where some customers pay a fee for an incoming referral, but it's small. It's a fixed dollar amount. It's 10 or $50. And then a much larger payout, you know, when it moves to closed one. We have models where the payout, when the, when a referral goes closed one, we can do multiple payouts. So 1% that goes to the company that referred the opportunity to us and then a different amount that goes to the actual representative that works for that company. So, you know, so I can pay a referral provider company, you know, 10% on the transaction, but then make sure the individual sales rep that that actually handed that referral to us also makes 500 or a thousand or something like that. So, you know, so we can tier it that way. Those are some of the most common use cases that we see. Yeah, that's a great point. Because if the reps aren't getting it, it just goes to the company. The CEO is happy, but those reps may not be very motivated. No. And, you know, it's so funny to, you know, because we've seen this for so long now that um, that we've got some insight into what best practices are. And and it's almost, you know, humorous to kind of work through this with customers because they sometimes have such strong opinions, but they don't understand the unintended consequences that come from having such strong opinions about how they want to structure the product. No, no, no. Look, I don't want the company to get anything. It's just a sales rep. Okay, well, what you need to understand with that is they're working on the company's time. So we have to work through all that. But really, you know, that's all I think, you know, par for the course. It's not a problem. What are you seeing in terms of uh, on the payment? So typically around 10% on a closed one deal. And in a SaaS subscription, are are your vendors that you're seeing, are they typically paying out just on that first year subscription or, or multi-year? Typically, hey, don't 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 hate me. I'm just a messenger here. Typically, yeah. it's just the first year. And to me, that's okay. a mistake. I remember a couple of years ago sitting in a keynote in a channel presentation 
where an IBM channel chief was was giving the keynote. And, and the model that he presented was we pay for a referral the first year and every consecutive year, it actually bumps up by 2%. So 10% when it closes, a renewal at the end of one year pays 12%. At the end of the second year, pays 14%. You know, and I was so drawn to that model because now you're incentivizing more than just go bring me, go bring me, go bring me demand. Now you're incentivizing keep my churn low, which, you know, you know as well as anybody how critically important retention and churn rates are in a SaaS environment. You know, if I can motivate somebody to bring me a customer and then keep the relationship with them alive and fresh to keep that customer happy, driving ongoing renewals, those renewals are some of the cheapest revenue sources I have. Yeah, I like that approach. You know, many SaaS companies, ours included, operate on more of a, you know, land adopt, expand model. And, you know, what if we paid even a higher commission on the expansion than the initial land just to drive that that customer engagement and and, you know, partner activity. I think that's really, really smart. I really think that's a great model. And I and we strongly advocate for those types of models. And, you know, sometimes it works. And sometimes people say, mm, nope, too expensive. We're only going to pay for the first year. No problem. It'll help drive demand. You know, talk to me in another year or two and let's see if we can't do something to help keep churn rates low and keep customer satisfaction high. And this is a good, inexpensive way to do that. Yeah. Well, I'll have to talk to our CFO to see if he'll He'll uh, be acceptive of, of those kind of policies, but I think it could go well, go very far in, in driving that type of partner behavior that you want. Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk to your CFO, the thing I think that, that sometimes gets lost here is, you know, when you're paying on, you know, when you're paying a percentage on the transaction, that, that's almost always viewed as contra revenue. It's just a margin reduction on that specific transaction. But you need to step back and look at that transaction from a much broader perspective. The customer acquisition costs on that particular transaction are going to be dramatically lower than your standard CAC simply because somebody walked that person to the, you know, to your digital storefront and said, here, I've got a customer for you. You've paid almost no customer acquisition costs to get that person on. You can afford a decreased margin on that revenue. In fact, many times when companies purchase a referral automation platform from Impartner, it's paid for out of that marketing budget because it's viewed primarily as demand generation rather than demand fulfillment. And so, you know, it's important that your CFO and that all CFOs and that all businesses have the ability to kind of step back and do almost a completely different kind of swim lane on this incoming demand. Don't burden it with your full sales allocation because that'll drive the CAC up arbitrarily when it shouldn't be driven up. Only burden it with the variable costs that go along with referral-based demand. Yeah, I, I recently had a talk with Angus Robertson and we were talking about the SaaS channel metrics that matter. And one of the ones he mentioned was your LTV to CAC ratio. And done well, this could drive up LTV and drive down CAC. Absolutely right. And, and, you know, the perfect model is always the most blended of models. And so, you know, a model like this on its own, I think is effective, but not ideal. It's always when you have that blended of some direct and some indirect and some managed and some unmanaged in your referral business. And so it's just important when you have such a blended model of demand generation that you're able to allocate costs specifically. And by the way, if you're talking about channel metrics, that are critical to, to understand and to manage to, then Rob, you're my hero because so few people understand that. 
I've been an advocate for so long, you know, for financial and accounting models that look at customer acquisition costs, lifetime value of customers, partner acquisition costs, lifetime value of partners, churn rate by partner, churn rate by tier. I think being metric-based in how you manage your channel is one of the most important things that can happen because it eliminates all of the hunch and variability out of what, what we at Impartner feel, and it sounds like you resonate with, is one of the most strategic go-to-market models you can possibly have, that of the indirect channel. Yeah, absolutely. And having the ability, the dashboard to track those metrics. It truly all comes down to an effective dashboard. I see so many companies where they've got great dashboards and great metrics. They're driving them out of some CRM system, Microsoft Dynamics 365 or something. You know, They're driving out of a CRM system. And on their direct business, they've got big screens hanging on the wall with reports on them. And they print out reports on a daily basis. And they have hourly interaction with the salespeople. And on the indirect channel, they have quarterly business reviews, you know, where they'll meet yes. with a they'll meet with a key partner, but once a quarter, and maybe not even every quarter. And for some reason, they're satisfied with that. But on the direct side, it's all about the daily metrics and the daily interaction. And I look at that and I say, "You've got great dashboards. You just got them hooked up to the wrong part of the vehicle. They hook them to the engine that's driving the majority of your revenue generation." And you now will become a much more effective and efficient organization. Yeah, I think we could have a whole separate podcast on, on building partner channel dashboards. All right. So fascinating conversation, Dave. I want to jump into the personal side. You know, in my Channel Journeys podcast, I always like to know a little bit more about the folks I'm interviewing. So for you, how did you get into the channel? Did you have channel experience prior to joining in partner? I had a lot of channel experience, but it was all managing channels. And I was not a vendor in the channel space. And I was working, you know, I'd been managing sales and marketing for a few large and very successful companies. And I was working at a firewall company in Seattle, Washington, managing a channel of thousands of channel partners. And, you know, and the feedback I'd had from the channel partners was, you know, your partner portal is terrible. And I would say to myself, why don't they like my partner portal? I've got all of the documents they want in the partner portal. And the, and the reality was we did. We had 20,000 documents in our partner portal. It was basically a skin over a SharePoint drive. And I realized over time that I was using it almost more as a partner avoidance mechanism than a partner engagement mechanism because partners would email or call and say, hey, you just launched this new firewall. Do you have documentation on it? And it was so easy for me to just pass them off by saying, you bet we do. It's in the partner portal. And then I would mute the phone and say, God help you trying to find it. Yeah. You know, and so I knew we needed to redo our partner portal. And so we'd contracted with a Seattle based web development group to go build a portal for us from scratch. And I had three or four really good features kind of lined out that I wanted to build in. And I was on a call with an analyst group and I shared with the analyst that we were rebuilding our portal. And, and they said, don't do it. Let me introduce you to a little company called Treehouse Interactive in Draper, Utah, and you might like what they want. And to be honest with you, I'm a little embarrassed that I had been managing channels for so long and, and was unfamiliar with commercially available out-of-the-box PRM, Partner Relationship Management, software. 
So we met the firm, you know, they took my three requirements that I had written for my portal rebuild and they threw them out the window and said, instead, look at these 18 things that we can do. And some of the 18 things that they showed me were just mind blowing. And uh, we, we loved it so much. We ended up buying the company. That was four and a half years ago. We renamed it from Treehouse. We renamed it to Impartner. And it's just been an absolute wild ride. We knew it would be because I knew if I could manage channels for as long as I did and not know commercially available PRM software, I bet there's a lot of other people in the same boat. And that has absolutely proven to be the case. Do you have any stats on how many vendors, like what percentage are using off the shelf versus you know building their own custom apps? You know, so many companies have great technology groups and uh, and they always have a sense that they can build their own stuff and uh, and you know what I the way I typically deflect that conversation is I'll interrupt and say wait before before we go any further do you do you guys use a CRM software do you use Microsoft Dynamics 365 do you use Salesforce do you use HubSpot and they always do they say yes we yeah. do I'll say why didn't you build your own and they say, well, that's different. They have so many features in them that we, we could never replace. And I say, the only reason you think you could build your own on a PRM system is because you're thinking of it the way I was thinking of it at my firewall company. It's a skin over a SharePoint drive. If that's what you want, by all means, build your own. Yeah. If you want a product that allows for segmentation and workflows and onboarding partner journeys and a full-blown CMS where you can keep the content on your partner-facing portal fresh and up-to-date on a daily or a weekly basis, if you want the ability for lead generation, leads to flow out and deal registration, I mean, all of these things that we do, you'll never build that. And by the time you do build it, I've moved on and added five more things you haven't even thought of. And, and we, we end up really not finding a lot of people that in the face of that conversation are convinced that, you know, that that's really what they want to do. And so they buy our stuff. Yeah. And there's so much functionality, like you said, being blown away that there were 18 things that Treehouse could do. And you were, you were thinking of maybe three. Absolutely right. You know, I, I had a dialogue with uh, with the CMO of a company one time. There, we were talking about doing a PRM solution for them. And their business, by the way, was hyperconverged infrastructure. And I was chatting with this gentleman, and and he said, "Actually, Dave, I think we're going to just build our own PRM." And I said, "No, no, Bruce, listen, that makes all the sense in the world. I'm going to go build my own hyperconverged infrastructure." Oh, actually, wait. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense for me to do that because you're the expert in that field. It doesn't make sense for you to do PRM. I'm the expert in that field. And they're, they're still a happy customer to this day. Well, you're very passionate about PRM, about Impartner, the channel. What else are you passionate about outside of the channel and work? What do you love to do? Oh, you know, I've got a little secret getaway up in Montana that I love to slip away to. And I do my best. I'm not always very effective, but I do my best to keep the trout population under control up there. But I'm worried that they're getting away from me a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> fishing and uh, sailing. I love to sail on a lake up there. And I just love the outdoor stuff. Yep, it's fun. Awesome. Well, you live in a great place to, to do that. Yeah, Utah's awesome for that. Well, fantastic. Anything else? Did I miss anything on this whole referral influencer market that I, that I should have asked you that I neglected? No, Rob, that's really refreshing to have a conversation with people that are kind of that into it. You know, the, I think the concept of shadow channel, which, you know, as far as I can tell, kind of throws back a little bit to the emergence of shadow IT, you know, seven or eight years ago. 
where the concept that was trying to be expressed with shadow IT was, look, you've got your IT organization, you've got your traditional management of IT, but it's just not keeping up with the speed and the pace that modern business works at. And so business owners, line of business people like myself and like you are increasingly doing our own evaluation and purchase of technology. And and it really was a dramatic kind of step change from the old IT groups to now um, line of business owners like ourselves are making those decisions. And, And I think the reuse of that concept of shadow channel says the same thing. You've got a traditional model. I'm not saying it doesn't work because it's still very effective, but may not for all customers keep up with that daily demand, that daily pace of business that you need to run at. And so people are looking for non-traditional ways to kind of, you know, fill their demand funnels. And, you know, as non-traditional as it as it seems now, it's like the music scene. Alt rock from three years ago is just rock today and alt pop today is going to be pop tomorrow. And so an alternative channel today, give me two or three years, is just going to simply be the channel. And there will be some new alternative model that's emerging and and partner will do its best to keep up with that and provide manageability and insight into that model as well. So it's an ever evolving landscape. Wow, that's, that's a great way to wrap it all up together. And I like the analogy with shadow IT. All right. Awesome. So just final thought, how can people find you or learn more about Amplifinity? Amplifinity, an awesome product. We think people are going to really love it. You can get all the information that you need for that referral automation platform off of our impartner.com website. When you land on impartner.com, you'll see links that take you into kind of traditional reseller models. You've got a full PRM solution there that can help you with lead distribution and deal registration and asset libraries for indirect channel sales enablement. But now we also have links that talk about managed and unmanaged uh, referral programs. So land on that page in partner.com. There's there's a little chat bot that will pop up and offer you the ability to chat with people. Feel free to chat. We have nothing but channel experts in this company. So everybody that we have here that, that you can chat with online have effectively built managed channels in the past. So reach out to us. We'd love to chat about about your needs. You know, if there's something we can do from a technology perspective to help, we'd love to. If there's nothing more than just offering some best practice and advice, we'd love to do that as well. Reach out in partner.com. All right. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks again. This has been a fun and, and very interesting conversation and uh, gave me some new thoughts as I'm designing our new program. So great to have you on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, Rob, thanks. It's been great to, to chat with you. It's, uh, I get the same sense of passion about the indirect channel from you that I feel myself. It's, it's good to kind of connect. I love it. All right. Awesome. Well, I hope to see you again soon. All right, guys. Is it me or are these interviews just getting more and more interesting? That was a ton of fun. Thanks, Dave, for joining me on the show. I'm learning so much and I hope you are too. Dave gave me many things to consider as we're updating our own channel program at OutSystems. And I love Dave's opening line that the sassier the company, the more non-traditional the channel. And his tip that we need to onboard faster and offboard slower. And a referral program can actually play a big role there. Visit channeljourneys.com backslash CJ39 for all the show notes and links from today's episode. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to Channel Journeys or wherever you're listening to the podcast. You don't want to miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Join me next time when we'll have another awesome Channel Journeys guest. And until then, have a great channel journey. 
Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.